you have your Bibles, I want you to take them and turn to 2 Corinthians. You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. I'd like for you ladies to, to listen very, very closely. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And I, I, I want to say too, uh, we want to remember the families of those that have been affected by the tragedy there in that church uh, in the Carolinas. And um, such grace, such integrity, such dignity as these families have demonstrated the love of Christ and forgiveness. And just a testimony to all of us of, um, you know, God's love for us. I wrote, in my, I wrote in my journal, I said in 1996-97, my dad and I built my house, the house that I'm living in now. I acquired plans. I talked him into traveling 60 miles plus one way, each way. Uh, he was a man who knew infinitely more than I did about building. He knew everything from surveying the lot to building the forms. He knew plumbing. He knew electrical. He knew every facet of building my house. He uh, would give me counsel and advice, most of which I ignored. I relegated a man who understood the workings of a Saturn V rocket who along with his colleagues had answered the call of President John F. Kennedy in the early 1960s to put a man on the moon. I relegated this man to being hired help, day labor, and most of his suggestions, if heard at all, were reasoned away. He would suggest I would ignore. Today, years later living in this house, I regret not listening to my dad. I went on to write, Many things about my house are firmly in place. They are unchangeable. They're set in concrete. They are constantly a reminder to me, you did not listen to your dad. I still struggle today. I wrote this down. I still struggle today to listen to my dad. Though we eat together every week, he at 85 and I at 59, I still find myself wanting to recoil, to defend my actions or my thoughts. Perhaps it is my desire for his approval, for his affirmation. Maybe it's my own pride and desire to be independent. I don't know. But I went on to say this, men, if you still have your dad and you have the opportunity to listen to him, or someone you would put in that role, then I suggest that you do so. Because more often than not, even if with his mistakes, he is motivated by love and a desire to correct in you what he may have failed in teaching you when you were young. There's a statement in The Gladiator, it's a powerful scene to where the gladiator, the emperor, looks at his son and he says, your failure as a son was my failure as a father. I wrote down a couple of things because I think that is so true in our lives that sometimes men 
we look at our lives and we realize that as best as good of men as we are, there were some failures that were made by our own dads. One writer said this, he said, Today Hollywood has changed the role of dad. We've reprogrammed him from Father Knows Best and Andy Griffith to now a bumbling idiot, a joke, a buffoon, a dysfunctional appendage to the family. We have emasculated, feminized dad. We have stripped him of his God-given role as a pastor and a leader and we have relegated him to a peripheral position in the family who for the most part sits on the sidelines. He went on to make this statement, we have witnessed the greatest tragedy in America, the breakdown of the family. Kirk Cameron was asked about same-sex marriage. I believe it was Kirk Cameron. He said this, <clears throat> he said this accounts for only 1.6% percent of the population of this country. He said the greater threat today to America and to the home is the divorce rate and the breakdown of the family, the home, and marriage itself. And I would add to that the complete, the complete disintegration of the role of the dad in the home. Men, we're living in perilous times. There's no other way around it. And because we're in an African-American community, I would say that the African-American community has been hit even harder by a complete annihilation of the institution of marriage and family. The role of dad is a far cry from a man like Martin Luther King Jr., who that great civil rights leader, his dad was so firmly imprinted into his life. Laura Hillenbrand wrote a New York Times bestseller called Unbroken. You've probably seen adverts about the movie. movie. You may have seen it. It is the biography of a man by the name of Louis Zapparini. He's an Italian immigrant, or he comes from a family of Italian immigrants. He was in the 1936 Olympics. He was a runner and actually shook hands with Adolf Hitler. He served on a B-24 bombardier. But Louis... Zapparini said this, he said, I will never forget this moment. He said, I was sitting in a movie theater when all of a sudden, he said, the movie stopped. He said, the lights came up. He said, a man walked up to the, to the platform, to the stage in front of the theater. And he said these words, he said, men, report to your post. We are under attack. Pearl Harbor has been attacked. He said he would never forget that. Now I want to say to men here today and maybe even to boys today that that may be a call to you and I because I believe that America is under attack and the role of a man, that of a dad, that of a father, that of a husband is under attack today. It's a spiritual attack and it may require you and I to have some additional training some things that you and I may need to may need to look at that may have been failed to have been taught to us by dad. Now let me let me quote that statement out of the gladiator again. Your failure as a son was my failure as a father. The emperor is on his knees in this movie The Gladiator. He looks at his son 
who wants to be the next emperor and he tells him you will not be the next emperor and then he goes on to say in this intense intimate moment between father and son he says your failure as a son was my failure as a father. Now let me make a couple points men listen to me. Every dad fails to a degree. No perfect dads. And the failures they see in their sons, especially, or in their children, are often reflective of the failures they see in their own life. Now listen, they will try to correct them if you will allow them to do so. And if you're a dad here today, and you realize, hey, I made some mistakes... Even if your children are young, it may be that you need to sit there by their bedside even today or this evening or tonight at some point and say, listen, I've I've made some mistakes. Be specific. Number two, there are no excuses. It is your responsibility, especially if you are a young dad, to determine where those failures were made by your dad and to correct those so that you don't pass them on. Robbie Zacharias was speaking to the Atlanta Braves and he asked this question he said how many of you listen to this how many of you know your great grandfather's name either paternal or maternal he said how many of you know where your great grandfather was buried and he sat there and he said it was silence just like this congregation About that time, an Atlanta Brave player stood up and he said, I care not my great-grandfather's name and I care not where he was buried. What I care is that my children know that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And Ravi Zacharias said it almost took him back a moment. But isn't that the question? Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I want you to turn there. It's right after 1 Corinthians if that helps you out any. And we do have energy drinks for anybody who may need one right now. <laughs> In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through, um, through verse 17, watch what Paul says. He says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Satan? I just want to say that, interpret it properly. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and the idols? And idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them, walk among them. I will be their God, they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now go back to verse 14. Do not be yoked together with what? With unbelievers. Now, what Paul is doing here, and men, I want you to listen very closely because the first point is simply a question. Men, I want to ask you, what are you yoked to? When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, this was a church, what Paul first of all is saying is Paul is saying there are two worlds and they're side by side. There's light, there's darkness, there's Satan, there's Christ, there's righteousness, there's lawlessness. They are diametrically opposed to each other. You remember when you were a kid, 
You remember those little magnets? You remember taking a magnet and you'd turn that thing a certain way and you'd try to push them together? What did they do? They repelled. You simply could, you could force them together, but as soon as you took your hand away, they would move apart. They were polar opposites. So what Paul was saying here is he's reminding the church at Corinth, he was simply saying this, there are two worlds, there is God, there is Christ, I mean Satan, there is Christ and there's Satan, there's light, there's darkness, there's good, there's evil, and you can't force them to agree and come together. They will never fellowship, kononia, they'll never be intimate. And so this is what Paul was saying. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul said this. He said, listen, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he said, we have a treasure in an earthen vessel. He says, here, you and I have the, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit in us, but it is in a carnal, fleshly container, and they are at war. Do you feel it? Listen, look this way. If they're not at war, you have a serious and I have a serious problem. Let me tell you, folks, you may, you may try to sin. I may try to sin. Thank God when that conviction comes. Because you know what that's the Lord doing? He's saying, this is, this is off limits, Satan. You can't come in here and you've got to fight on your hands because there are two natures. Listen to this. There are two natures sharing the same container. You've got the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ now living in you men and women and they are at war for one thing, control. The word filled means to be what? Controlled. Filled with the Holy Spirit means to be under the what? Control of the Holy Spirit. But your flesh is working against that. Now, Paul's problem at Corinth was they were trying to live in both worlds. In other words, they were simply trying to yoke the Corinthian culture with Christ and bring them together under the same yoke. Listen to this principle. Dad, this war is not only about you, this war inside of you, but listen, Dad, but about those you are leading. Robert Murray McShane said this about his congregation. He said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. If I am not walking with Christ, it will affect every single one of you right now. You have come to hear a word from God in the scripture properly exegeted and for God to speak some truth into your life through this messenger. If I am not living, seeking to live a holy life, my friend, every one of you will be affected today, right now. Dad, let me remind you of something. Dad, your greatest need, your family's greatest need is your personal holiness. If you're a single mom, mom, you've got the weight of that on you. Your children's greatest need is your personal holiness. And let me remind you something. If you're a single mom here, or you're single here, let me remind you, ladies, you, have a, you are a bride. You are the bride of who? Jesus Christ got a great groom. Oh, Sheila's got a lot better groom than him than Reggie she does than me. Now, let me give you a principle here. There's a song that we sing sometimes says, the old man is dead. 
I've got an old 80-year-old uncle, and I, he'll sing that in his cracked voice, but he's just got a sweet spirit about him. He's still a good singer. But he sings this song. And when I did a revival in my home church last year, he sang this song. And I told him this. I said, if for some reason I die before you do, I said, let me ask you to do me a favor. Sing that song at my funeral. Now, I hope I outlive it. But let me tell you, the song says the old man is dead. Look this way. The old man is not dead. He is in the process of being strangled And that is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in the process, men, in your life and in my life, of choking the breath right out of the flesh, the old carnal nature. But let me tell you what happens. Just about the time the flesh and the the carnal nature is about to die out, we drop down. I drove an ambulance. I was an EMT for years, field medical officer. I've had to do CPR. That is horrible. This is most of the time what you look like doing CPR. Because, for instance, a drunk, you cock that head back, you put down, you breathe into their mouth, and then you go, (laughs) there's nothing pretty about CPR. Let me tell you, men, what we do a lot of times. The Holy Spirit is in the process of strangling and, and choking the life out of the flesh and the carnal nature within us, but we drop down there to do CPR to bring it back to life. Paul said, listen, do not be unequally yoked. Let me ask you a question. Is the life you're living right now, men, I'm talking specifically to you, but every one of you, is the life you're living right now pleasing to the Lord in every area? John MacArthur said this. He said, the call to holiness is to live a distinct and separate life. To live a separated life is a tremendous challenge, particularly in a culture which is bombarding us with all the elements of paganism. He continues, it is not only our greatest challenge, it is our greatest source of joy and usefulness when we obey Christ. Now let me repeat that. Because obedience to this command brings joy, usefulness, and blessing. And the problem is in some of our lives, men, are you listening? Say amen. Some of us men are outside the realm of God's blessing because we're living a life that does not please Him. Sometimes that's in the private areas. Listen to principle here. God will never, God will never, never reward disobedience. He doesn't do it. You know, a lot of times people will look at me, they'll come for counseling and say, you know, I just don't understand everything seems to be going wrong in my life. Well, let me tell you, when things are going wrong in your life, let me tell you the first thing you do. Do a spiritual inventory. You just simply do an inventory. You just simply say, "Are are there some things in my life right now in the dark places of my life? Are there some things that I'm doing, habits, attitudes, words that I'm speaking, uh, something that I'm doing that is in effect strangling the Holy Spirit from blessing me. You see, what happens to us, we get unequally yoked. What Paul is doing is Paul's reaching back into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22.10. And you know what what God said? It's strange. This is the closest Don. Don is good to have you. Don and his wife here today. Don's a pastor from Illinois, good friends of Doug and Sandy. Doug and Sandy told me they had some friends. So I want to get pictures of you. No, I'm teasing. But Paul reaches back into Deuteronomy. Remember, Paul was a student of Gamaliel. He could have been the future next high priest. 
The apostle Paul may have memorized the Old Testament. He reaches back to Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 10. And you know what God had the audacity to say to Israel? And the reason I said that, Don, is this is as close as we get to cussing. He said, do not yoke an ox and an ass together. That's exactly what he said. You know why? Because they don't have the same strength. They don't have the same gait. They don't have the same nature. You put them under the same yoke. You've got a problem. If you're a young single person here today and you're contemplating marriage, don't even date somebody that you would not marry. Well, men, what do we need to look at? Let me give you some quick things and then we'll close in a moment. What do you and I yoke ourselves to? Write this word down, programs. Let me define a yoke. A yoke is defined as a wooden frame or bar with loops at either end fitting around the necks of a pair of oxen for harnessing them together. Paul recognized that the problem in the lives of the Corinthians was that they were unequally yoking Christ to the Corinthian lifestyle and culture. In other words, you and I are yoked to something. Let me give you an example. Recently, about a month ago, God just finally said, that's enough. Now, before you judge me, and I'm going to go over here and get a chair, but before you judge me, be very careful right now. But I would come in in the evening. And my way of dealing with anxiety and stress was to eat supper and then to watch Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) 6.30. I timed my life around Wheel of Fortune. I said one time to Ledge, I said, Ledge, I got to get home to watch Wheel of Fortune. He said, yes, Dad, you and all the other senior adult women. God began to convict me because I said something a long time back about the place on my couch. I have a nice leather sofa, but on one end of it is a dimple. And I told you that during the holidays, we have our homeless meal, and my dad was there, and he'd gotten there before I did. And when I finally got home and after the community meal that we had had, uh, we were going to eat our, our holiday meal late. Dad was sitting in my dimple. He was sitting in my place. So I had to sit on the other end of the couch. And I noticed that thing was a lot more fluffy. More, it was a lot fuller, and it convicted me because God reminded me of how much time I spend in the evening, unwinding in front of the TV. You see, that's why I said programs. Recently, God convicted me. I began to feel convicted about it. It was as if, let me be honest with you, it was as if I were looking at a wooden yoke hanging there on the wall with my head like a trophy deer in one side of that yoke and the TV in the other. And God began to convict me. Now, I have 15 channels, so before you think, well, he must be, I I knew he was evil. (laughs) He's probably watching that hell's box office, the movie channels. He probably watches all kinds of filth. No, I don't. I have 15 channels. I have the very basic cable package. But God began to convict me. The average American 
year, ages 2 to 11, spends 24 hours a week watching TV. That's a full day, one day a week devoted to TV for 24 hours. Ages 2 to 11, 2 to 11. Aver, uh, ages 35 to 49, 33 hours per week. The average American spends five hours a day watching TV. African American, it's more. Hispanic, it's less. Television has a, men, television has an unbelievable influence in your life. It feeds your soul. It feeds your soul with the world's philosophies, teachings, viewpoints, belief system, lust, wants, desires. I mean, it feeds you. I sat there one day telling Sheila before I, I, I convinced her to let's cut this thing off, which it didn't take much at all. But I looked at her and I said, all five of your senses right now, all five of your senses are on high alert. You are picking up Reggie wiping his forehead. Your peripheral vision just picked that up and recorded it in your hard drive, listen, to the day you die. Your skin picked up the movement of air. You're not only picking up my voice, you're picking up the noises and the scratches and the movement of people around you. Your five senses are on high alert and they are storing at an unbelievable rate. Let me ask you something. Just how many murders, lust, adultery, just how much do we have to watch on TV before we realize that all five senses have been recording and storing it away on our drive? Hey, when I was a boy, I could ride my bike all over the city. You lived in a neighborhood, you could leave your windows, doors, everything unlocked. But we have programmed people because of the things that we watch. And unlike other forms of conversation, it's one-sided. It's one-sided dialogue. Men, when you sit down in front of the TV, you can't communicate, you can't negotiate, you can't reason with it. You give it complete access into your life. Number two, you give it a position of authority. What do most living rooms look like? They are orchestrated and organized around what? What if we all took the TV out and we had the Word of God on a table? I just see the kids coming in from school. Mom, what happened to the TV? I don't want to read the Bible. I always laugh. I wrote it down on my wall where Ethan looked at Alicia one day. My grandson looked at my daughter-in-law and he said, I don't want to play Jesus today. <laughs> There's a lot of theology done in that. Men, let me ask you something. Could you give up TV? I mean, just cold turkey. Walk home. I mean, go back to the house. You may need to walk home. And remove the TV out of your life. You know what my dad did when he came home in the evening? Played ball. We'd play ball. We'd throw the ball back and forth. I'd pitch. I'd imagine. Listen, it wasn't none of this competitive junk that everybody's consumed with now. Go, Johnny, go! Good gracious, son! Get off the base and go, go, go! Oh, I spent quality time with my son Johnny today. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where dad 
plays ball with his boy, talks about life. He had time for me. And at 85, I have time for him. I saw your weeping, Sandy, in the worship service. But I couldn't help but smile when Jeffrey said in that prayer, may we understand men like your dad are leaning over the banisters of heaven and they are watching this event. And they are praising and worshiping right along with us in the integrity of the kind of man that your dad was and is and continues to be in heaven is lived out in your testimony now. And many of you in this room have a dad you probably need to spend some time with before it's too late. Men, what programs do you watch? Your peers, now quickly. Let me ask you some questions. Are you yoked to ungodly influences, a job, a career, the pursuit of a career at the expense of Christian principles? Are you yoked to ungodly peers, employees, an ungodly boss in which you, listen to this, on which men you value their approval more than you do that of Christ? Have you begun to shape your morals and compromise your convictions because of your job in order to hang on to it? And are you doing that in the pursuit of education? Listen, there are certain curriculums that can affect and even undermine your faith. She's entering one of the most dangerous professions of all, in my opinion, psychiatry. I have yet to meet a psychiatrist that is a follower, a committed follower of Christ. I had a, we, we had a youth in our church. She today is a premier pediatric psychiatrist. She is literally a mover and shaker in that field. But she walked away from her faith. Men, it may be that you have to step back and you have to say, is my career, is the company that I work for, is the profession that I'm in, am I compromising the disciplines of my faith, programs, peers, and then thirdly, props. And by that I mean drugs, alcohol, pornography, crime, immoral behavior, addictions that are designed by your enemy to cause you to lean on anything but Christ. Your wife, men, is not a spiritual crutch. Though she may be under your yoke, she is not responsible for the spiritual leadership of your home. You are. So, number two, you will look like, first of all, number one, men, what are you yoked to? Number two, you will look like what you're yoked to. In other words, whatever you're yoked to, that's what you're going to look like. Paul said to the Corinthians, he's, and the word Corinthianize meant to go to bed with a prostitute. It was synonymous, and listen to that. Corinthianize was a term used in those days that meant to go to bed with a prostitute. You may say, well, now, wait a minute, that's weird. Ladies, single ladies and, and single moms and ladies, what did I say to you a moment ago? You're married to who? You're married to Christ. You're the bride of Christ. Men, let me ask you something. I got news for you. For you. you are a bride too. 
The church, ecclesia, ekkaleo, the called out ones, we are the bride of Christ. But when you and I, if we're not careful, what the world will do, the world will seduce us into bed. And we will compromise. And we become corinthianized, carnal, fleshly. It frustrated Paul. Paul wanted to give them meat and solid food. And he said, but I'm still giving you, I'm still giving you milk. There's a lady, she's not here today, but I'll never forget this. I made this statement, and she was sitting back there somewhere, and Willie, she was sitting about where you are, and she groaned out loud. I made this statement. I said, men, what difference is it between Herod watching Herodias, watching Herodias's daughter dance and you and I watching Dancing with the Stars? What difference is that between us and Herod? And she moaned out loud because she knew that that was the truth. Man, I'm telling you, ladies, I'm telling you that what you and I are yoked to, we begin to look like. Paul was saying to the church of Corinth, when you're yoked to the Corinthian culture and not to Christ, you will begin to look like it. We used to have a problem. Listen, we used to have a problem with Amy. When Amy was a baby, Amy loved carrots, sweet potatoes. Uh, What else, Sheila? Corn. What's a common thing in all of those? They're all orange, yellow. And before long, we got upset one day. We ran her to the pediatrician. We said her nose is orange. Her nose was turning orange. I mean, all around here was orange. And he just laughed and said, get out of here. She's just eating a lot of orange vegetables and that just happens. Let me tell you, folks, listen to me. You and I will look like what we consume. And that's what Paul was saying to this church. Without TV, let me tell you something, I'm, I'm reading a lot. I just finished that 604-page biography by Eric McTaxis on the Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When I finished that book, you know what I did? I went and got down on my knees and I wept. I wept and cried out in my quiet house by myself. I wept to the Lord. When I read John Pollock's biography of D.L. Moody, titled Moody Without Sankey, I was pastoring in England. When I read that book, I fell on my knees and I wept for three days, so broken and convicted by the life of D.L. Moody. Booker T. Washington. When I read Booker T. Washington's biography, I was ashamed of my life. My oldest daughter, who's now a dentist, I gave it to her. I said, read this biography. When she finished the biography of Booker T. Washington, she came in tears streaming, an African-American. Tears streaming down her face. She looked at me and she said, Dad, that is the greatest biography that I have ever read in my life and she wept like a baby. I'm telling you folks, when you and I cut the TV off and we begin to allow God to pour into our lives, there is so much that he wants to teach us. Sometimes our career men makes us look a certain way. You ever notice a car dealer can look like a car dealer? There's one commercial with a car dealer and the guy looks like a car dealer. Doctors look like lawyers. Lawyers look like, I mean, doctors look like doctors. They may need to look like lawyers. Doctors look like doctors. Lawyers look like lawyers. And, And Don, I hate to say it, but sometimes preachers look like preachers. You know what I used to say all the time? I don't want to look like a preacher. 
I tell that to Sheila all the time. I don't want to look like... And you say, well, Brother Jeff, don't you want to look like a preacher? No. Jesus didn't look like the religious leaders of his day. And he didn't even sound like them. I want to look like Christ. I don't want to look like my career. I don't even want to look like my calling as much as I want to look at the, like the one who called me, Christ. Dad, what you and I are yoked to, we begin to look like. And if you begin to find yourself yoked to the culture and the things of the world and they're pouring into you, before long you begin to look, you begin to act, you begin to dress, you begin to sound like the world. And there's only one problem with that, men. You begin to lead the people that you're leading along with you. There are pastors today in America who may have massive congregations, but I can tell you this much. They look more like America than they do Christ. Well, we got to close. You remember Samson? Wow, what a tragic life. His mistake was that he was yoked to the wrong thing. You remember he was a Nazarite. You know what a Nazarite was? A Nazarite was where the parents committed a baby to the Nazarite position, which meant this. He couldn't take any wine. He couldn't touch anything or be around anything dead. He couldn't... um, I mean, it was about purity and holiness. He couldn't cut his hair. You remember? Before long, you find Samson, he's in in the vineyard. You weren't even supposed to be in a vineyard, weren't supposed to eat a raisin, grape, nothing. Stay away from him. But before long, he's in a vineyard. He gets honey out of the carcass of a lion. He's touching the dead. And before long, he has his his head in the lap of who? What does Delilah do? She does a Leo. She goes Leo on him. Leo's our barber. She goes Leo on him. Delilah begins to whack away and take away the hair. Men, I want you to stand. In fact, I want all of you to stand. I wrote this down. The final compromise was this. That Samson was physically drained... He was toying with the enemy. You remember he kept telling Delilah, she'd say, Samson, what's the key to your strength? And he'd say, well, now listen to this. If you'll just braid my hair in a loom. But you see, Samson kept flirting around. He kept toying with disobedience. He he was caught up in the Philistines, the enemy that he was supposed to be setting Israel free of. Now listen to this. This is good theology. Instead of setting Israel free from his enemy, the Philistines, he had his head in the lap of a Philistine who was working for the Philistines. And over and over again, he played this game. And the Bible said that she'd say, oh, Samson, the Philistines are here. And he'd jump up, he'd throw off whatever she had done to him, and then he would defeat his enemy. Until one day he was real tired, spiritually probably down, head in the lap of Delilah, and Delilah began to say, Samson, don't do this to me anymore. Tell me the key to your strength. Samson said, it's my hair. If you cut my hair, I'll be as weak as any other man. She called the men, those people, they cut his hair. And then she said, Samson, the enemy is here. The enemy, Philistines are here. The Bible said some of the saddest words in all the Old Testament at least. It said Samson stood up and he roused himself 
to take on the enemy, but he did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. Man, I want you to listen to this. I wrote this down. Delilah was trying to get the key to his strength. Men, are you listening? There's a principle here. Your enemy, men and women, child of God, your enemy already knows the secret to your strength. Your time in the Word, your time in prayer, your time in the fellowship of godly people, your time in holiness and holy living. That's what your enemy is trying to cut off. Because when that happens and you come under a full attack of the enemy, and let me tell you something, it'll come. It'll come. Sooner or later in your life and in my life, we'll wake up one day and there'll be a difficulty. It may be a health scare. It may be a problem in our marriage, in our home. It may be with our finances. It may be the loss of a job. And listen, in America today, probably listen men. If you, young men, are not in a major war, your sons probably most likely will be. My dad and I were sitting in Primo's, and man, I was bragging. I said, man, dad, uh, he, he asked me when Megan became pregnant. He said, well, what's she going to have? He knew Ledge and Alicia were having a boy. And I said, well, they just found out they're having a boy. I'll never forget a sadness came over my dad. And he looked and he said, son, he said, I wonder sometimes if we're not at the point of another war. Samson, the enemy took him. They plucked out his eyes. They tied him to a grist mill to where now the enemy would laugh and make sport of him as he was grinding the mill. They would laugh at him, push him every single day. Men, I wrote down here, in all honesty, some of us are blindless. I mean, we are blind and we are yoked to the things of the world to the degree that Christ can't use us. But Samson repented. And they carried him one day to the Philistines' temple to make fun of him. And they put him at a point to where he told the little boy that was attending him, he said, put my hands to the pillars and there he was, this man, and he cried out to God. He said, God, I repent. I, I have become culturized. I have been Corinthianized. I have become more like the Philistine than the person of Christ. Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim, forgive me and give me your strength one more time. The Bible said that he began to push and the temple of the Philistines begin to fall and it resulted in more deaths, more cost to the enemy in his death than in his life. Men, listen to me. If you will die to the flesh and you will die to that carnal nature and you will begin to die to self, God will use you more in your death than you'll ever use in your life. And you may say, what do I do? Jesus said this. He said, come unto me all you that labor and heavy laden. Take my yoke. Learn from me. You know what, men, what it is? It's a picture of you and I looking there in that yoke and seeing Christ on the other side. And the more time we spend with Him, yoked to Him, the more we look like Him. 
this past Tuesday, I was getting ready to leave to go eat lunch. Sheila called me. She said, uh, one of our grandsons, she said he's cut himself. She said, my daughter-in-law said she's real upset and, and, and our grandson has cut himself and he's bleeding bad and you need to get there. My friend, I was doing over 70 miles an hour down Raymond Road. Sheila could not believe how quickly I got there. I ran into that house. There, there she was, distraught. There he was laying in the bed, wrapped a blanket around him, grabbed a diaper, picked him up, and ran as fast as I said. I said, come on. By that time, Sheila was there. You watch the other kids. And, and me and my daughter-in-law, we took off. I was an ambulance driver again, too. Here I was. I tell you what, I had the flashers on. I was on... I was coming down the interstate. I passed JPD and they didn't even bother to do anything. I pulled up to Blair E. Batson. Ledge was there to meet us. He said, Dad, I got it. I went and parked the I went and parked their vehicle. I went into the ER and I sat there. They wouldn't let me go back where he was. I said, but I'm his grandfather. It doesn't matter. You sit here. Only two can go back. But I'm a pastor. You sit here. Only two can go back. Finally, Ledge come out and Ledge said, Dad, doctors are looking at him. Pediatric personnel are looking at him. Uh, he's going to be all right. You can go ahead and go. Kelly, uh, John, I walked out. I got in the vehicle. And I put my head on the steering wheel. And I wept. And it was in that moment the Lord reminded me of something. That's a dad. That's what a dad does. He sacrifices. He gives. He works. He struggles. He does all that he can do. And when it's all said and done, he steps to the side and he bows his head and he thanks the Lord and he just weeps where nobody's looking. Dad, I want you to understand something. This nation... We're, we're bleeding. Families are bleeding. Marriages are bleeding. You see, I was smart enough to know I've seen people die of arterial blood loss like that. I knew what it was. If he had cut an artery, I knew I had to get there quickly and to quickly keep him from bleeding to death. But man, we are bleeding spiritually in this nation, in our homes, and it is time to go to our post and be the men that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord. We just give you glory and honor for you alone are worthy. Lord, I think sometimes the longer that I'm a dad, the more I sense and understand your heart in a way that no other, I don't believe it could ever be understood. When you wanted to show the, the, the deepest place of the heart of the Father, you told the story of the prodigal son. And Lord, I know this about that dad, that he got up every single day looking across that horizon, looking for that son. He had given him everything. He kept looking for him all day long in the evening over and over and over again. And God, you're looking across this sanctuary for somebody who may need to come to you. 
And so, Father, I pray, dear Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room would understand that they have a loving Father and He has done everything possible because He cares for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room and in this world. And I pray, dear Lord, that men would come to this altar. I pray if they're lost that they'd be saved. I pray, dear Lord, if they need to recommit their life to Christ and to say, Lord, I want to be yoked only to you. If there's anything I need to get rid of, Lord, help me to do that. May we look like Jesus. And may our family and our friends and the people we work with see nothing but Jesus in us. Pray this in the name of Jesus.